studying, uh, continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. And so if you'd uh, open up to Ephesians chapter 2, and then ushers, you guys have Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible, the ushers have one for you, so just raise your hand, they'll get it to you. In the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, what now? Oh, nothing, okay, Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians 2. Now, uh, last week, we we went through verses 1 through 10, 1 through 10, and I'm going to do a little refresher, and then we'll pick up at verse 11, but real quick, uh, before I have you stand for the reading, um, verses 1 through 10 the Apostle Paul was saying, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. And we talked about the trichotomy of man, body, soul, and spirit, and how there were, there, in the Garden of Eden you had Adam and Eve who were full human beings, body, soul, and spirit. But when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, the Lord said, eating of that tree, dying, you will surely die. So it was current and progressive. And so the Spirit of the Lord was removed from the equation, and so they were just soma and psyche. They were body and soul, uh, soma and psyche in the Greek, soma, psyche, pneuma. They were just soma and psyche, body and soul. The spirit had departed, and so they began to die. But God created time. Time is, is grace in a sense, that between your, the point of your birth to the point of your death, God has given you that remnant of time to be reconciled to him so that you can you repent of your sins, receive his forgiveness, and that he has justified you by his death on the cross so that you can become a full human being again and have that hope of heaven and that you can be body, soul, and spirit. He makes you alive and you're a new creature in Christ. And that's the whole walk of Christianity. You're a new creature in Christ and the spirit of God dwells in you. And he goes on to talk about how we once used to walk in accordance with the things of this world, but we have a new spirit in us, and we have conviction, and and there's desires to want to change and to walk in the fullness. And God is rich in mercy, which means not getting what we deserve. And so as we see that he lavishes this mercy on us, and he lavishes this grace upon us, he's also just. He pays the penalty of our sins, but he also gives us grace that we would walk in the fullness of life. And, And it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Um, you know, it's not that we have this un- uh, unbelievable ability to follow all the rules and regulations of the Lord. We fail all the time, but the beauty of it is it doesn't separate us from God. Uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Christians aren't sinless. As a matter of fact, we, we sin just like everyone else does. Amen? I thought you just figure that. Um, now, we aren't sinless. We, we attempt to sin less. There's some of you right now that are in the middle of a backslide. Well, listen, he who's been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove. I believe that with my whole heart. If, if, if it says that, that uh, uh, God has given us his son, in his son is life, and, I, and he says, I have told you this so that you may know that you have eternal life, all right? He who has a son has life. He who does not have a son does not have life. I have told you this so that you may know you have eternal life. If you can lose your salvation, then it was never eternal life to begin with. Think about it. Think about it. If you can lose eternal life, it was never eternal life, right? He has given you eternal life. Now you think, well, wait a minute, uh, shall I, can I, you mean if, if, I'm, if I'm in the middle of an adulterous relationship, I've given my heart to the Lord, the Bible says bear fruit in accordance with repentance, only you know if your heart is steadfast in the Lord. You know, the Bible says we can judge you by your fruit, and if you say you're an apple tree, I want to see some apples. We may struggle a little bit in wondering... But, but the idea is, you, you rise and fall before one master, who am I to judge another man's servant? You're going to go through your struggles. But I would say this, God didn't save you so you could continue in sin, so that grace may abound. He saved you so that you could walk away from sin. He's given you the ability to do that. Some of us are in the process, others of us are, aren't. But, but the idea is, he who's been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove. How do we get to a place where we're walking in the fullness that God intended, that we have this victorious Christian life? It's real simple. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Is there anybody in the room, and I already know the answer to this, is there anybody in the room who's ever said, I swear to God I'll never do that again? Can I just, okay, let's do the hands. Come on. And how many of you have done it again? I'm going to put two hands up for me. Does that mean I'm not saved? I'll tell you what, it sure is amazing when I see his kindness, it leads me to repentance. Let me tell you something. The only good thing in you and the only good thing in me is Jesus Christ. The church itself, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer pointed out, you know why we gather? It's not because we are superhuman. 
and we have this ability to walk in, in righteousness. Those, even the Apostle Paul, who began his ministry by saying, I'm a sinner. That's a pretty good confession, right? It took me all like 30 minutes last week to get everybody to a place where they're going, okay, I, I, I'm a sinner. The Apostle Paul began his ministry by saying, I'm a sinner. The last book he wrote, 2 Timothy, he concluded it by saying, I'm the chief of sinners. You would think he would have improved, yes? But he didn't. Because he realized that in him, in his flesh, dwelt no good thing. He realized that apart from from Christ, he could do nothing. Christ in you is the hope of glory. The only good thing in this room is Jesus Christ. Let me tell you why we gather and what makes the church. The church isn't a bunch of people who are righteously walking. The church is a bunch of people who have Jesus Christ in common, that he is our only hope. And everything we do as a church is funneled through the mind and the heart and the word of Christ. Period. Where Christ is, the church is. So if, if we remove the Word from the equation, we remove Christ because in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You remove the Bible, it just becomes an AA meeting. You remove the Bible, it just becomes a gathering of, of any type of, you know, Mason's Lodge or whatever you want to call it or some sort. We'll have some things in common, but we aren't the church. Where God's Word is, Christ's church is because that's where Christ is. And that's why we pass the Bibles out. That's why we read them. That's why we encourage you to read them. Because that is the formula. That is, that is the anchor of our soul. That is that which directs us. It's our compass. It's our bearing. It's the directive for our life. And that's what we have in common. That's why we read it. That's why we study it. That's why we obey it. And so with that being said, let's do it. Let's stand and read the Word of God. We stand in the presence of the Lord as we read His Word. We sit for the word of the teacher. We're going to pick up at verse 11. After Paul goes through all those things that we've been blessed with, he begins verse 11 by saying, therefore. And and the idea of therefore is he's simply saying, everything I've said that you now understand, last week's study, with that understanding, therefore, here we go. Therefore, remember, everyone say remember. remember. That you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, I'll explain that momentarily, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, everyone say no hope, and without God, say that, in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. Amen? Amen. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Enmity means your two factions are warring, okay? And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. Maybe some of you heard it on the radio. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's the church having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's a good passage. Let's hope I don't obliterate it. Lord, thank you for your word. And God, as we gather as the body of Christ... Lord, this this is your body. We're your children. Why we gather is because of Jesus. And so, Lord, as we open up your living word, which is the embodiment of you, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would understand completely in the depths of our heart what it means to be a member of the body of Christ, what you've done for us and what we're to do for one another. And so, God, please, knit our hearts together. Speak to us, Lord, we pray. Through the riches of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, please be seated.
I was thinking about Pastor Dave saying he was listening to the radio broadcast while he was driving. I wouldn't recommend that. He'd fall asleep. And... <laughs> and watching the podcast while he's driving. Um, well, this passage is deeply ministered to my heart because oftentimes, um, especially as I've been ministering in this, this community for 11 years, uh, just trying to figure out what Christian community is all about. I mean, you just drive through Thousand Oaks, you drive through Westlake, you drive through Newberry Park, you drive through the Conejo Valley, you're going to see churches everywhere. You're going to see different names, different denominations. You're going to see all kinds of things. You're going to see churches go through seasons. You're going to see, as we saw with Calvary Community, Larry DeWitt, Brad Johnson, Sean Thornton, and you, and you see the uh, church like a set of lungs, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, numbers increase, numbers decrease. Churches go through seasons. We watched uh, this little fellowship began as a home or as a home study, and then started at uh, Skyline, and then came over here. I think it was the first time in the history of California that a church had applied for a variance to be able to use an industrial site uh, to host a church, and they were cleared and they got the the permission. And then they built the church out and borrowed $100,000 from uh, Calvary Costa Mesa. And if you go behind this wall, there's still the original stone wall that they built. And, and uh, the church exploded, and then it went through a split. And then uh, they couldn't afford the facility, so they moved back to Skyline. And the facility uh, was an industrial park, and they couldn't rent it to anyone. So they had to find a church to rent it. And the only church that was open to renting it was the one that split from them. So they moved in here in heartache and sadness and you know, division in the body of Christ. And then uh, that church went on to, to grow here and Calvary grew over there. And, and then there was reconciliation between the churches. And, and now you have, uh, you have Lighthouse, which was that church that split. And then you have Calvary Chapel, Thousand Oaks. And through that, we've had Manuel over at Calvary Chapel Skyline. And, and you watch the seasons of a church. And one of the things I noticed too is is in the 11 years that I've been here, I, I, I realized that most of my life, I would go about four years at a job, and then I'd switch to another job. And that's, a, I, I learned, I, that's why I liked high school ministry. You, you get these kids, you only have to have them for four years. You're like, see ya. <laughs> Lord bless you, good luck with that. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and uh, junior high ministry is even better. It's like two and a half years. <laughs> Bye-bye. You little monsters. And bless your heart. You mess their hair up as they leave. And you... And, and, yet, and yet what you find as a pastor um, is, you know, every four years, it'd be kind of nice just to move from, from a community because you don't really have to deal with folks leaving or division or running into people who used to go to the church or people that are upset with you or someone that you had a contention with. You just get a fresh start in a new, new city. And I remember at the four-year mark when I was here, and I'm like, uh, you know, and there's some things that had happened. There's some folks here and there, and, and you, you're going through some of the intense issues. And it, it, it's like family. You just you, you get involved in stuff, and you, you you just wish you could get another family, right? Anybody? <laughs> Thanksgiving's a time where you want another family. Anybody? And 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 yet, what what occurs is, um, you know. Four years goes into five years, and then five into six, and, and you, you, the Lord's speaking to you about your weaknesses, and the longer you stay, the more you're dealing with issues in your own life, because oftentimes you just say, you know, I don't need you, I'm going somewhere else. But how does a pastor, how does a pastor stay in a community for a long period of time? And I always marveled at Steve Larson, how, how do you do it? Here's a man who's been over at the bridge, which was an evangelical free church at Newberry Park, and he went through horrible stuff. The church split. He was telling me about a time where they were at this rundown place. He says the only the only building in Thousand Oaks or the only church in Thousand Oaks that that when it was raining you had to wear an umbrella. You had to have an umbrella on the inside of the church. It was leaking like a sieve. And, and, uh, and, and everyone was saying, you know, don't renew the lease, don't do it. And the church was splitting. It was down to just a handful of people. I don't know the exact story. If I've got it wrong, forgive me. But I do know this. He just felt as though God said to stay and, and not to give up that lease. And it came down to the 11th hour. And, and Steve said, you know, I was crying out to God and just saying, you know, Lord, I, I'm, I'm okay with never being successful. I'm okay with never having a big church. I'm okay with never having my name and notoriety. This is my community. You've called me here. If I'm going to shepherd 12 people, I'll shepherd 12 people. But God, what do you want to do? I know you're calling me to stay and I'll stay. And he did. And they renewed the lease and, and some more people left. And the church was at a place where it was barely alive. 
And it was then that Amgen came and said, you know, we were hoping you wouldn't renew your lease because you had the option, but you did, and we really need that building. And so we're going to buy you out on that lease. We're going to give you a brand new one over here, and we're going to give you money to build it out. <laughs> Cha-ching! And uh, so the Lord came through, I'd say, pretty nicely. But God's in the business of taking you to the end of yourself to make you somebody that will be equipped to minister to a community. But see, we come to a place in our life, we come to a place in our life where we struggle with community, especially Californians. You know, we, we build fences and gates, and, and we don't know our neighbors, and we walk in and out of our house. And this idea of, of investing in the life of another human being, really the most we could say we have of community is if you're blood, you're community, but if you're not blood, forget it. Well, how does that equate to the body of Christ? I mean, we have his blood in common. We have his blood in common. And yet the church is a place where we, we shop it. We walk into a church and we say, what's in it for me? And you've heard me say this oftentimes. People, in the course of 11 years I've been here, I think maybe on two occasions, people have come up with that look on their face like, we're shopping for churches and we want to know what you have to offer. You've asked the wrong guy. So I look at him and I say, what do you have to offer? Because the Bible says if you want to be great in God's kingdom, be a servant of all. Have you been called to serve here? Are you a Christian? Are you a believer? I mean, if they're not a believer and they're looking for, I'll, I'll serve them. But if you're a believer and you're coming to evaluate our church to see if this is a fit for you, that's not how it works. You're called to a body of believers to invest in their lives and love on them and endeavor with them. As it says in Ephesians 4, endeavor to keep the union of the spirit and the bond of peace. And you know what happens in the course of time? We, we offend one another and we're offended. And when we're offended or we offend, we have two options. We can humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He'll lift us up, and we can minister to one another. And we're at enmity. That's where the Scripture speaks in, in Ephesians chapter 2. We're at enmity. We're at odds. We're, we're warring with one another. And, and you've, you've had this in your own family, haven't you, where you're warring with one another. And, and you're like, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm out of here. If I never see you again for the rest of my life, so be it. And in some cases, that's necessary. In some cases, that's necessary. Uh, a, a parent who's just gone off the deep end or a child that's unruly and they don't understand that, that as for me and my house will serve the Lord and they come to a place where there's, there, there's, there, there's a drug addiction or there's, there's whatever it is. Whatever it is, they've just chosen. They've said, look, we want you here, but this is what's required to be here and they don't want to be here and they leave. Well, that happens in the body of Christ. We have Matthew 18 to confront sin. You know, walking in known sin, walking in habitual sin where it's a, a evident to the body of Christ and it's known by two or three witnesses and can be confirmed. The idea is we don't go to that person or they don't go to you to say or to me. They don't go to say, you know, I caught you in your sin and you're a wretched sinner and you're going to hell in a handbag. And I'm so much better than you and I knew you were a loser. That's not Matthew 18. Matthew 18, the purpose of Matthew 18, which is disciplinary action in the body of Christ, is to, listen, is to win a brother or a sister back into the fold. I want to reason with you. You know, God's blood, his, his, his sacrifice is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. He forgives you, but he wants you to repent, and we want you to come back. Well, I, I feel like I can do this and still be a member of the body of Christ. No, the Scripture says you can't. And it's like any child in your house. Well, I feel like you, I should be able to be here even though I'm taking drugs. No. No, you can't. I'm not going to enable you to destroy your life or a family. I love you too much to allow you to continue in this sin that's killing you. And sometimes when you confront people in that sin, they're offended. And the interesting thing is with a church... Unlike a, a biological family where you have financial ties, most people come to a church because there's something to get. And usually the people that are offended will move to another church or, or they're just moving from church to church for a handout. And, and so when Paul is speaking here, he's talking about the unity of the body of Christ and what's necessary for us as Christians. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, and here's a man that spent the majority of his adult Christian life in a prison cell before he was executed by Hitler. Most of the men in the seminary that he had trained, most of these ordinances that he had trained in the seminary, these seminary students, all of them died on the Eastern Front, save but for, I think, two. You would think his life was fruitless with the men whose lives he invested in to make them pastors of, of the evangelical church in Germany, and most of them died on the Eastern Front in Russia. 
But Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, he says, we do not have direct relations, or excuse me, he says, we do not have direct relationships with others, but relate to them only from Christ's view of self and, and, our, and, and others. He said, God works his gospel in Christians so that they learn to live by forgiveness and not by false expectations and idealism. You know, the reason why we get offended in a church and we leave is because we have, we have false expectations and idealism of what we believe the church is supposed to be. But listen, it's not your opinion or my opinion. It's the word of God that dictates what the church is to look like. That's why the word of God must be taught. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, you know, book by book, precept upon precept. That doesn't mean I'm opposed to topical messages, but teach the whole counsel of God's word. There's 66 books of the Bible. How many people believe that it's the, the inerrant, uh, inspired, holy, without error word of God? Raise your hand. How many believe that it should be obeyed? How many of you have read it all? But that's not an insult. For those of you who didn't raise your hand, that's, that's okay. We're getting there, amen? We're getting there. But the idea is the whole counsel of God is to be obeyed. When I hear pastors say, well, this is an obscure passage that really I only had to study in seminary. Are you kidding me? Every verse should be studied by the believer. Not just a pastor in seminary who does a book report on a Sunday for the congregation. The idea is we all study it. And so Paul is, is emphasizing in this word the importance of the body of Christ. And, and as he goes through who we were prior to coming to Christ and then who we are now, he begins in verse 11 by using, as I ask you to say, therefore, remember. And the very first thing he wants you to remember is this. Christian, listen. Christian, listen. Remember this. You who have this idea that somehow you're better than somebody in the body of Christ, you who have this idea that somehow your opinions are far more important than somebody else's, you who have this idea that others are to serve you and you don't serve them, you who have this idea that you can sit in judgment of another human being. Now, judgment is permissible, but only in the idea is you judge unto identification, not unto condemnation. And so as, as he says, remember therefore, Christian, that you, once Gentiles in the flesh... Meaning you didn't even have a relationship with God. You weren't even in the family of God. You had no bloodline. You had nothing. You were an alien. You were called the uncircumcision. For the Jew, circumcision was... Is there anyone who doesn't know circumcision? I don't really feel like going through the explanation of it. (laughs) Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? Anybody? If you don't know what it is, just ask the person next to you. Okay, later, though, later. Cause, uh, but the idea is circumcision for the Jew was, was a mark that, that the, the area of the body for procreation would be marked that, that this is a covenant with God that your children, your progeny, are all to carry. These covenants, these promises that I've given you, this is a mark. This circumcision is a mark of the covenant, and, and, and this is to be carried on for generations to come. And so he's saying, you didn't even have that. You weren't even given the law. You weren't even picked in the mass of humanity as somebody who had that. There's, a, there's maybe a handful of people, Marty being one of them, that, that, that comes from an Orthodox background that can trace their lineage as, as a Messianic Jew. But for the most of us, we were Gentiles. We weren't even circumcised in the idea of the spiritual sense of it. And he says, this was made by the flesh, by hands. In verse 12, that at the time, you were without Christ. You didn't even know the Lord, Christian. You didn't know Him. You were a walking dead man, a walking dead woman. You were at enmity with God. The the thing you deserved, if your heart stopped beating at that moment, was hell and damnation. Some of you go, I don't don't believe a, a loving God can send me to hell. Yes, He can. Because a loving God is also a just God. And if you want to apply that principle to God, just apply the same thing to our law system. Just remove judges, remove rules, remove stoplights and everything else. There's no consequences to any actions. Who are you to put me in jail? Who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? It's the authorities. And the God who holds the heavens in the span of his hand and keeps your heart beating and your lungs moving, I would say he has pretty good authority to dictate how we're to operate. And yes, there is a hell. It's like a child who looks to the parents and says, you know what, I don't want to be in your house anymore. And off he goes. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. 
And then you, you no longer can buy the drugs because you don't have the money to take from your folks. You no longer have a warm bed to lie in. You find yourself sleeping in places you thought you'd never sleep and eating things you never thought you'd eat. And you may be able to ride that train all the way to the end of your life. Some of the most prideful people I've ever met are in rescue missions. Put the potatoes in that section. All right, there you go. Isn't there any more bread? There's some bread. I don't want that bread. I want whole wheat bread. Okay, let me go get you some whole wheat bread. There's some whole wheat bread. Well, how come he got an end cut and I didn't? I'm sorry. Did you cook the food? Did you buy the food? We're all prideful. Whether we're in a palace or in a rescue mission. And we can ride that donkey to the end. And the Lord says, we were without Christ, whether in a rescue mission or in a palace. We were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers for the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. No hope. Hope. Hope is so important to human beings. Hope is so important to human beings. You don't have hope. Life is miserable. Why get up in the morning? I remember the, the story of the man by the well, Bethesda, and he was waiting for the, when the angels would stir the waters, he had to be the first in, he'd be healed. He was there for over 30 years, waiting to be the first in. He'd wake up every day going, well, maybe today I'll be the first in when the angel would do it. And he wasn't. Year after year, just the hope of maybe getting in the water as a cripple before anyone else did. Never happened. And the Lord says, you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? I don't care about the well. What is your hope in? I mean, think about the things that we've put our hope in over the years. Think about it. I mean, it, most recently, hope and change. It's a word that inspired a nation, didn't it? Hope. It, it, it just captivated our young people. That's not a political a, a statement. I'm just saying it, it captivated our young people. Hope. Hope is so powerful. You remove hope and you can destroy a human being. Absolutely destroy them. It was Corey Tenboom that when she and her, her sister Betsy were put into Ravensbrück concentration camp in World War II, they, they had been hiding Jews in their home and they'd been arrested by the Gestapo and they'd put in Ravensbrück concentration camp and they were believers. And Corey snuck in a New Testament underneath her prison dress and she was scared to death and she was asking that God would protect her from angels as they were doing the pat down and the searches. And then she realized, well, most angels are invisible, so God, would you make them visible? And, you know, her prayers were just like a little kid. And she ends up getting this Bible into Ravensbrook concentration camp. They would hold Bible studies every night in their barracks. They would lead countless numbers to Christ. Folks that were just right on the, the edge of eternity to step in. Thursday, I went over to University Village to the old age home, and, and I met with Sid and Betty Johnson, and, and we want to do a Bible study over there. And she says, Pastor Rob, why would you do this? I mean, there's so many things. You're busy. I said, I said, Betty, these folks are on the edge of eternity. These folks are on the edge of eternity. I'll go anywhere to minister to them. Corey went to Ravensbrook Concentration Camp. While she was there, every night, her and her sister Betsy would, would pray and thank the Lord for everything because the Bible says, give thanks in all things for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And, and they would be praying. And Betsy, her older sister, said, Lord, thank you for the, the lice as they're just itching themselves incessantly. Corey says, I'm not thanking God for the lice. You're insane, sister. Only to find out later that the reason why the Germans would never come into the barracks to interrupt their Bible study is because they were afraid of the lice. These little tiny guards that God had established, greater than the German army. And they said of that barracks, as every night they would open the scriptures, that's the building that hopes. That's the building that hopes. I've shared this story before, but I can't think of a better illustration. When the USS Indianapolis went down um, and, and most of the men died, many tried to stay afloat. I think over 900 entered the water, and when they finally rescued them, there was less than 300 alive. Many had been eaten by sharks. And they tried to figure out through, through scientific study uh, what would allow a man to survive, why, why such a large portion died and, and why some survived. And, and they did an experiment with Norwegian rats 
Norwegian wharf rats, and, and they prohibited these rats. They threw them in a tank of water, and they didn't allow them to float on their back. They would spray them with water whenever they get on their back, and so they'd have to keep paddling. If they try to float on their back, they'd spray them, so they'd have to go back over and, and paddle. And as they did this, the average survival rate of these Norwegian wharf rats when they were spraying with water so they'd have to continue to tread water was 37 minutes, and they'd drown. And they just dip under the water. But they had a control group, and, and just as these, these rats in the control group were, were going under the water to die, they'd pick them up, and they'd rescue them, and they'd dry them off, and they'd nourish them back to full health. And then they'd put them back in for the experiment again. And, and instead of, uh, of lasting 37 minutes, they lasted 32 hours because they were waiting for that hand to come and rescue them. If hope can work in a rat, I think it can work in your life and mine. Amen? But do you remember when you were without hope? What's going to happen to you when you die? I mean, really. I mean, you think about the things that you won't do unless it's a sure thing. If your brake light goes on or the oil light goes on or a plane says that the engine's out or or there's any type of, of percentage that you could be in danger. You don't, even, you don't even venture there. And why is it that when we do a funeral, everybody's whispering? And you just don't want to talk about death. I don't even want to see the body. Just hide it. Have someone else touch it. Why is it that we're so overwhelmed at a funeral? Nobody listens to me at a wedding. They're like, yeah, 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 honeymoon, get out of the way. Oh, she's so pretty. She's so lovely. Nobody listens to me. Everybody listens to me at a funeral. Whether you're a Christian, there's, there's, there's no atheists in foxholes. And you can sit in a funeral as an atheist or an agnostic or whatever it is, and you can fold your hands and you can just stare at me. And I just know. Because when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that barks the loudest is the one that got hit. And when you're sneering, I just know it's just nailing you. I'm dying and I don't like it. I mean, my whole theory works except for that whole issue of death. But when you die, it's just nothingness. Really? What what do you bank that on? My theory. But what's what's the basis of your theory? Well, I'm scientific. Really? Why is there so many contradictions to your theory? Why is it that you're a creature that loves? Why is it that you contemplate your existence? Why is it that you feel guilt? Why is it that there's a right and a wrong? Why is it? How come science hasn't delivered us, delivered us if it's such an amazing thing? How come? How come? Why are we still accountable to God? Why is it when you stub your toe, you, you cry out for someone greater than you? Why do you look for hope? Why is hope so manifested? Why does it move the human psyche? Why do you just put all, all rationale aside when it comes to love? Why does your heart affect you so, Mr. Science? What's evil? It's a slippery slope. But the idea is we aren't without hope. You see, hope can sustain you in the darkest hours. Why is it your heart breaks when your child dies? When they just disappear into space and they are no more. Why do you cry? Why do you have tears? Because God made you that way. And every tear you've ever cried, he has in a bottle. And the scripture says that was you and that was me. You know that feeling. In the emptiness of your soul, in the darkness of your life, wondering if you could face another tomorrow, wondering what life was all about, being inundated with the guilt of what you've done and the shame of what you have participated in. Verse 13 says, But now, in that condition where you once were, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near. Why? By the blood of Christ. Blood. What a strange group of people we are that we talk about blood. Blood. Blood is a life force in the human body. You cut the arterial vein and you'll bleed to death. What is the blood? The blood means his life was poured out for yours and mine. It's, it's a very slow, painful way to apply the death penalty. 
and we're all on death row. And you're guilty and so am I. But one who was without sin, one who could pay the penalty, died in your place and died in my place. And we who were without hope on death row cried out for that efficacious, that hopeful blood to forgive us the multitude of our transgressions and our trespasses and our sins. And it was Christ, when we were afar off, who brought us near by His blood. Verse 14, for He Himself, listen, for He Himself is our peace. That's another one. Peace. Peace. Who doesn't want peace? We're all crying for it. Do you know in the last 800 years, there's been less than 300 days of peace without a war on the planet in some nation? That's awful. There's been over 800 peace treaties since since the 1700s, and every one of them has been broken. You, You don't even have peace with your neighbors or your family, and it tears you up. Nobody likes to be at enmity, at odds with one another. It hurts. We hate being isolated. What kind of a life is that? You live in your room playing Simon and Garfunkel on the walls and nobody loves me and I'm out there. Doesn't work. We want peace. But listen, there's two stations of the cross. There's There's the vertical and there's the horizontal, right? Now, if you have peace with God, you have the peace of God, which means you're able to reconcile with one another because you've reconciled with the Lord. That's how the church works. We connect with Him this way and we connect with each other this way. And you can't have the peace of God until you have peace with God. Peace with God is is you give Him your sins, He gives you His forgiveness. And you who once were afar off and enmity at war with God have now been reconciled. I went to Fresno State to prove the Bible wrong and I was reconciled. I couldn't. I yielded. And I had, the, I had peace with God when I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, which gave me the peace of God. That in the midst of some of the greatest trials of my life, all I can tell you is I have peace. Tom Hunt was telling us, on Friday, as, as he was in the hospital with a stroke and the whole right, excuse me, right side of his body was, was shut down. Couldn't, he had to lift his hand to move it over. He couldn't speak. Face was drooped. Doctors came in. This is going to be permanent. And, and Tom said, he sat there and he said, you know, Rob, I had a, a total peace. He told all the men Friday morning, I had total peace. If God, this is what you want from me for the rest of my life, I'm okay with it. And I said, were you ever upset with the Lord? He said, no, I had resolved that a long time ago before and with other things in my life. And I, I just knew it'd be all right. He said, and then the Lord saw fit to give me everything back again. And he's raising his hand. He said, the doctor said, that's, that's the most amazing thing we've ever seen. He says, it's the Lord, it's prayer of God's people. He said, and even if they had prayed and I'd remained this way, I still would have had peace. God's in control. He's our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Let me tell you how that works. If you were at war with God, right, and you're shaking your fist at Him because you don't like the way that things have gone in your life, and you're upset... Because you had a plan and you had expectations and you had ideals that you wanted to see come to fruition. And you laid that out and you gave it to the Lord and you said, here, do this. And it didn't happen the way you wanted. And you're finished. One of the reasons why Ted Turner, who used to own CNN, was so angry with God is because he had prayed that his brother would live and he didn't. And he said, you know what? You didn't play by my rules. I quit. Now I'm going to be your enemy for the rest of my life. That's sad. We're in a fallen world, folks. And there's things that we don't understand, but I do know this, that whatever happens, God works it together for good. Either trust Him or you don't. You're either going to be bitter or you're going to be made better. You're either going to yield or you're going to fight. You want to fight God? I got news for you. You aren't going to win. What an exhausting life you're living. And really, are you making any difference in the span of humanity with billions of people who've gone before you? Have you really conquered this God thing? Is he really impressed with the war that you're raging on him? It doesn't work that way. And what happens is you have this wall of separation, you're angry. 
And not only that, we get angry with one another in the body of Christ. And he's broken down every wall. He's removed the wall of separation. It's a physical wall that we see in the temple where the Gentiles weren't permitted in, but he's broken that down. Now you can freely come to the Lord. There's no, there's no excuses this morning. Everyone can have a relationship with God because his blood has been shed for the remission of your sins. And there's nothing that stands in the way of you having a relationship with the Lord except for one thing, your pride. You can build the wall, but God, God broke, it, broke down whatever it was that was separating you from him. But if you want to build one to keep him out, you can do that. And when you get to hell, don't blame him. You look at him and say, I stepped into your presence in my own righteousness, and, and I, I didn't accept Jesus Christ. And I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Listen, the reason why we're all here is there's hope, and there's peace, and the wall's been broken down. Look around the room. Every color, every size, every everything, socioeconomics. There isn't one certain type of Christian. We're one in Christ. Male, female, Greek, Jew. And he goes on, he says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law, the commandments contained in ordinances so that to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. If a Jew could love a Gentile, that's an amazing God. If a Gentile could love a Jew, that is an amazing God. If an Armenian could love a Turk and a Turk could love an Armenian, that's an amazing God. I mean, you pick whatever you want. We're one in Christ. We're one in Christ. That's what the Lord does. God doesn't see skin. He doesn't see what side of the tracks you were born on. He doesn't see what your background is or anything like that. How do you get a melting pot in a pluralistic society to get a group of people in one room to agree on anything? It's real simple. You, who once were afar off, remember where you came from. Whether you were in the palace or you were in the rescue mission, remember this. You were without hope. You may have had money, you may have had all kinds of things, or you may not have had any of those things, but you were without hope. You didn't have any idea what was going to happen to you when your heart stopped beating. You were angry, you were bitter, your life was distant, and you were fruitless. And it doesn't matter how wealthy you were, you were lonely. And the only reason why people hung around with you is because you had money. You had no idea what love was, you had no joy, you had none of that. And then God came into your life. He broke down that wall. He transformed your life. He forgave you of your sins by the blood of Christ, and He made you one. He took all the commandments and the law of the prophets and he fulfilled them in his death upon the cross. And he said to you, all those laws, I'm going to sum it up with two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbors, yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. You're good to go. Love your neighbors yourself? Yeah, yeah. Love your neighbors yourself. I mean, I got the love you, Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, but love your neighbors yourself. That one, can we just do the first one? Because I really love the Lord. I love this part of the cross. I love this part. Couldn't you have just died on a post? <laughs> just, just a post. No, had to do the horizontal. Love your neighbor as yourself. I really love me. I love me. I don't think there's anyone in the room who loves somebody else as much as they love themselves. Oh, pastor, no, I don't love me. I'm ugly and I'm not, I don't love me. Yeah, you do. If you were ugly and you didn't love yourself, you'd be happy you were ugly. Think about it. You're just saying I'm ugly and no one loves me because you want more attention. That's why you're saying it. You love yourself. I love me. I love me. I feed myself more than I feed anyone else, as you can see. I love me. You, you love to see yourself in a family picture. The picture's good or bad based on how you look. Right? 
isn't it? I mean, I've told you the story. My wife and I, we're the youngest in both of our families. We take family portraits. We always get the lamest family portraits because we're the youngest. We have no say in it. All my kids are like biting their fingernails and their <laughs> kids have a finger in their nose. But all the older siblings, their kids look great. They're like, <laughs> And that's the one we pick that they give to everybody. It's just not fair. Because I love me and I think that picture is lame. But you love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the horizontal station of the cross. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, you must put to death that enmity. Because through him we have access by one spirit to the Father. And then he says, and this is what I close with. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Pay attention to that. You're citizens of the body of Christ. You're, you, are, you are members of the body of Christ, the household of God. You have been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. All of them served you and served me, and they died horrible deaths so that we could have fellowship one with another. Jesus Christ himself is a chief cornerstone. What did they do to him? What did we do? He was crucified. He's the foundational stone. You remove that, the whole building collapses. He says, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You see, here's how the church works, and this is what we close with. You claim the name of Christ. You claim the name of Christ. And you're forgiven the multitude of your sins when you were afar off and you were without hope. And you were at enmity and there was a wall of separation. God obliterated it and brought you in. The Bible says, he who's received much, gives much. Freely you've received, freely give. You know how the body's built up? Don't offend and don't take offense. Lay down your life, serve one another. We endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace for the long haul. I would say, leave a church if it's not teaching the Word. I would say, leave a church if it's teaching the Word inerrantly, with error. I would say, leave a church if the pastor's in known sin and is unrepentant. I would say, leave the church if the leadership is in known sin and unrepentant. But other than that, I wouldn't leave a church. Stick it out for the long haul. Well, I'm just not getting along with this person and it's just way too... Why? Well, <laughs> there's multiple reasons. Have you talked to them? No, I wouldn't talk to them. Why should I talk to them? Matthew 18 says to, to win your brother or your sister. God was crucified on a post. No, he wasn't. There's the vertical and the horizontal. We're one in Christ. Folks, we're on a ship from birth to death, and we're on this boat together, and we've got to get everybody to the other side. And I've got news for you. It's not about you, and it's not about me. It's about Christ, and that's the only way we're going to survive on this boat. Die to yourself and live to Christ. Reconcile what he did for you, do for others. Well, but they're mean and they don't talk to me. Remember what the word said? You know, that thing we hold in common? While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He sought us out. He died for us when we wouldn't even give him the time of day. Can't you do that for your brother or sister in Christ? And for the folks who come into the church who don't know the Lord, can't you serve them? God served you while you were at enmity with no hope, aliens, uncircumcised. He loved you. You know what the mark of a healthy church is? Love. Not love of yourself. Love of God and love of others. I've been offended and I've offended. I should correct that. I've offended more than I've been offended. And the thing that blesses me time and time again is the kindness of God 
and it leads me to repentance. And you know what that kindness is? When people who I've offended come to me and say, I forgive you, it makes me want to change. When they seek you out. I can't say I've always done that with the people who've offended me. I've tried. But the times I've had, it's always been fruitful. And the times I've hadn't, I haven't. It's never fun seeing them again. Why do we want to live like that? Let's reconcile. Let's endeavor to forgive as we've been forgiven. The mark of love is the mark of maturity in the body of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. That's what we need to do. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Your word that softens the hardest heart. Lord, what a blessing to be a part of the body of Christ. Lord, to to hear on Friday a person ask, how many churches are in Thousand Oaks? And someone went to go list them all. And he said, no, there's only one church. Lord, there's only one church in, in Thousand Oaks. There's only one church in the Conejo Valley. There's only one church in Ventura County. There's only one church in California, the United States, and throughout the world. And it's those who call on the name of Christ, who love your word and love each other. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would dwell richly in us, that our love for your word and our obedience to your word would give us a heart to reconcile with one another, that we would break down the enmity, the walls of separation, and we'd be one in Christ. Lord, I pray you do a mighty work in our lives. I thank you, God, for the way in which you've ministered and blessed this morning, and I ask that you would just strengthen the fellowship throughout this valley for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and worship this wonderful God who unifies our hearts and makes us one. Amen? Amen. Amen. Right.